Whether Australia Day or Invasion Day, January 26th needs to change. Will the RBA cause a recession? And good news for the Mersey River. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your host today for the 119th episode of The Week on Wednesday, Ben Davison. Unfortunately, the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, my wife and your friend, Van Batam, is unable to join us for today's episode. Those of you who've had to deal with grief and the various administrative tasks that come with the passing of family members will know just how difficult that can be. And unfortunately, today, Van has been unable to participate in the show because of those commitments. She sends her love and thanks for all the support that listeners have shown to her over the last two years and hopes that you'll understand her situation. She hopes to be able to rejoin the show next week for our 120th episode. And of course, will be joining me in Adelaide from the 22nd of February till the 15th of March for four shows at the Adelaide Fringe Festival at the Immigration Museum in the Yurt. I'm told it's a magnificent space. And we are, of course, very much looking forward to being in Adelaide. Bam will be there most, I think, all month. I'll be there most of the time, backwards and forwards a little bit as well. But you can catch us live, the week on Wednesday, live at the Adelaide Fringe Festival from the 22nd of February, every Wednesday, right through to the 15th of March. Tickets are available online now. Go to the Adelaide Fringe Festival webpage to buy your tickets and you can get the links on our social media as well. Now, of course, today being Wednesday, January the 25th, it's incumbent upon us to talk about January 26th. Now, whether you call it Australia Day or Invasion Day or a day of mourning, this has become a day which, quite frankly, does not represent a cohesive, universally celebrated day for our nation. And, you know, we have to think about this in its proper context. And I want to give a little bit of history here. So on the 26th of January, 1788, that's the day when British sovereignty was proclaimed over the eastern seaboard of Australia. That's the historical basis for January 26th being known as Australia Day. Now, we have to be really clear that the first celebrations of that didn't happen the next year. It was more than 30 years until there was a celebration on that day. And it wasn't until 1994 that January 26th was marked as a public holiday by every state and territory around the country. So this idea that somehow or another people try and put forward that January 26th is a tradition, it's you know somehow or another been the day that's always celebrated to celebrate our nation simply isn't true. And you can go online and you can see people posting different Australia days in different states. There's some from July. Some people say January 1st because that's when the Constitution 
and the Commonwealth of Australia came into being. There's a whole range of different days over the last 200 plus years that have been celebrated as Australia Day or Foundation Day or as the day when our country was formed. And of course, none of those days take into account that there was and there remains one of the oldest continuous civilizations in human history on this continent, which is why so many First Nations Australians, so many Indigenous and Torres Strait Islanders, consider it Invasion Day or Survival Day or a day of mourning. And you can understand why, because when the British came and started to colonise, people were massacred. You know, there's lots been written about this now. And we have to stop pretending that it didn't happen. You know, we can't continue the narrative that, that reinforced the idea of terra nullius, that is to say, nobody was here. You know, legally that was thrown out. We had the Mabo decision. But the narrative that somehow or another the first British soldiers and convicts were the first people here sort of persists culturally. And I understand that after 200 years of oppressing and suppressing Indigenous cultures, of dispossessing and in many cases abusing, exploiting and even murdering Indigenous people, that there is a big shift that we need to make. It's a big, big shift, but we have to make it because we have to acknowledge the shared history that we have. Otherwise, how can we possibly build a shared future? And increasingly, we're seeing events on January 26th pivot away from the notion of Australia Day to acknowledging that for the First Nations people of this land, January 26th, 1788 was a deeply, deeply painful day. It was the start of dispossession, of abuse, of some have described it as genocide. Now, we do need to have, in my view, a day that recognises modern Australia. It would seem not just to me, but to many, many Australians that January 26th is no longer that day, whether it was in 1994 or not. And many people in 1994, we should point out, didn't think it was an appropriate day then either. But certainly over the years, public's perception of this day has shifted. And the events to mark January 26th as Invasion Day or Survival Day, they're happening in every major city and most regional centres around the country. And you can go to the First Nations Workers Alliance Facebook page, that's First Nations Workers Alliance or FNWA, which is a group supported by Australian unions to get where those events are happening. And they are solemn events. These are not celebrations and fireworks. These are dawn services. These are marches. These are um, reaffirmations of 
the First Nations people and their sovereignty over the lands and waters which we now call Australia. And it's really worth, if you haven't been to an event that marks it as Invasion Day or Survival Day or a day of mourning, actually going along and participating because it is gives you an insight, a small insight if you're a non-Indigenous person, into just how meaningful and deeply painful it is to have January 26th as our national day, in inverted commas, because it does literally celebrate the dispossession of an entire civilization and the overriding of it with a whole new uh, colony and group of people. You know, Melbourne, for example, has cancelled the Australia Day Parade. And people are sort of, there's some people going, oh, this is outrageous. And, you know, there's there's already a march uh, to say this is a day of mourning and, and survival day. So, you know, there should be a parade that allows Australia Day to celebrate. But let's look at the reality of that, right? So if you think that this is our national day, well, the crowd's, and the general public just aren't supportive of it. In 2018, 72,000 people attended the Melbourne uh, Australia Day Parade. In 2019, that dropped to 12,000. By 2020, it was only 7,000. So you're talking about nearly 90% drop in crowd attendance over the course of two years. That's how quickly people are starting to realise that January 26th, it may be the day where where the British proclaimed their sovereignty over the east coast of Australia, but that doesn't necessarily reflect who we are as a modern Australian people. And the co-chair of the First People's Assembly of Victoria, Marcus Stewart, said that the parade axing was a small but positive step in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. You know, there'll be lots of debates about this, and it's always a flashpoint in the culture wars in Australia between elements of the left and elements of the right. And there'll be people on the left who want to proclaim, uh, who want to go even further, and there'll be people on the right who want to stop any form of uh, protest or acknowledgement that Australia Day is anything other than what they want it to be, and, and that's always going to happen. But the vast majority of Australians, the vast majority of Australians actually recognise that there needs to be something changed in this equation because 59% of people, and this is from an essential poll uh, Peter Lewis from Essential wrote an excellent piece in The Guardian this week about the fact that until we can actually decide what we're celebrating, we're not really going to have a national day. And 59% of people who were polled support uh, either a separate day uh, for recognising Indigenous Australians and keeping Australia Day on the 26th or calling Declaration Day or something else, uh, 
or support having a completely separate day entirely. So there has to be some pathway through this. And it's been really positive to see the union movement supporting First Nations workers through the First Nations Workers Alliance and understanding that this is part of an ongoing conversation in this country that we are we are the continent that has the oldest continuous civilization on earth and one of the youngest democratic body politics democratic governments on earth these are two very different things. And at the moment, Australia Day kind of celebrates the very start of one, but also the beginning of the end of another. Now, thankfully, thankfully, First Nations culture wasn't extinguished, but there's no question from historical records that there were many people who were part of the colonisation of this continent who believed that that should happen. And of course, that sounds just so horrific. It's so hard to even say that because it's just such a wrong concept. But there are many concepts from the past about inferiority and superiority and race and class that the legacies of which we have to deal with. And quite frankly, until we do deal with the legacies of those issues, they'll continue to haunt us. They will absolutely continue to haunt us. And in the year where we're going to have a referendum, where Indigenous Australians, Torres Strait Islanders, can be recognised in our constitution in the way they've asked to be recognised, it's appropriate that we really question the concept of Australia Day. You know, and it's gone beyond. It's gone beyond, you know, the union movement is obviously always at the forefront of progressive thinking, of inclusive thinking, of how do working people, whether they're in a job, looking for a job, retired from a job, how are they represented in the body politic, in society, how are they able to participate? And you should join your union. If you're not already a member, go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W. You can join your union. You can also become part of the First Nations Workers Alliance. That Go to the First Nation Workers Alliance Facebook page. You can follow the links there. Also on the Australian Union's homepage, there are links there. You don't have to be a First Nations worker to join that alliance. You can have a solidarity membership and support the work they're doing. Uh, and you can see right around the country that the impact they're having, the conversations. You know, I saw some things on Facebook just today of pubs, regional parts of Victoria, regional parts of New South Wales, acknowledging, acknowledging that January 26th is a painful day for Indigenous Australians and that. As such, they wouldn't be having any form of special entertainment and they, you know, they would be open for lunch and dinner, but they wouldn't be doing other things to mark it as somehow or another our national day. Now, that's a huge change in mindset for some people. I get that. 
but it's a mindset change that's increasingly occurring. And hopefully, hopefully, when we all vote yes to the voice, and don't forget, as I said on the weekend wrap, the numbers, if there was a vote tomorrow on constitutionally recognizing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice in the con- to Parliament, it would pass in all states bar one, and it would pass comfortably. So hopefully we're able to move forward and find a solution to this because, quite frankly, I don't feel like celebrating January 26th. I have in the past when I was younger. Absolutely. I'm not going to deny that. You know, before I understood the history, before I understood what it meant to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in this country to celebrate that day and the pain that they experience watching people take joy from a moment in history that marked an assault on their very way of life, their very existence. So I won't be celebrating January 26th. Uh, Van won't be celebrating January 26th either. Uh, we'll think about, I suppose we'll think about what it really means and, and, and uh, reflect on what more we can do uh, to support our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, comrades in their struggle and what we can do to support the voice and what we can do to ensure that whatever day becomes our national day, it's not a day that is soaked in blood and tears and pain, but a day that everyone can actually celebrate because it reflects modern Australia, not colonial Britain. So... January 26th, you might, by the time you listen to this, you might have already gone past that day. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, the 25th of January, hopefully you will pause and reflect on what the day means to you. Keen to hear your feedback. What do you think about January 26th? I've seen the polling numbers. We hear the commentary all the time. But what do you think? You're a listener of the week on Wednesday. Tell us about what January 26th means to you and what you'd like to see our National Day to celebrate modern Australia look like in the future. Now, one of the things that is not a cause for celebration, unfortunately, is that the RBA may be about to send Australia into a recession. I mean, this just boggles my mind. I've talked to people about this. We've talked about this on the show before. Inflation is high at the moment. It's the highest it's been since the early 1990s. And inflation figures came out today that showed last year inflation reached 7.8%, which is actually slightly below where estimates predicted it would get to. At one point, they were suggesting it would be 8%, so slightly lower. But of course, when you look at how anemic wage increases were particularly in the first half of the year when we had the Morrison government doing everything it could to keep wages low, wages have not kept up with inflation and people's uh, take-home pay has gone backwards as a result. Now, these figures 
mean that more and more people are paying more and more money just for the basics. And I don't need to tell you that because if you're listening to The Week on Wednesday, you are somebody, probably somebody who works, somebody who's retired, somebody who is very keenly aware of the cost of living. You might be a student, but whatever role you're playing in society at the moment, chances are you're not in the billionaire class. I don't think many billionaires listen to our show. So inflation is impacting on you. Now, the Reserve Bank's role in all of this, as we've discussed before, has been for a long time to use interest rates as a policy lever to bring down inflation. The theory being twofold. One, you raise interest rates. That curbs discretionary spending. People spend less money on things they don't need, which causes discounting, which means prices start to drop. But also, businesses are less able to invest, thus creating fewer jobs, thus lifting unemployment, thus reducing discretionary spending, thus encouraging discounting, thus bringing down inflation. These are the kind of two modes, if you like, that the Reserve Bank relies upon when it raises interest rates. And of course, it has massively raised interest rates when you think that they were at, I think, 0.1% uh, and are currently at 3.1%. So we've gone up three percentage points in something like a year. Now, this is causing significant pain to many, many people. And I hate to say it, but the Reserve Bank does not really seem to care. The, the reality is that Philip Lowe has called on Australians to ride out this period of inflation and not try and get higher wages. Now, Philip Lowe, who's the boss of the Reserve Bank, is on a million dollars a year, more than a million dollars a year. He gave this speech in late November saying that wage increases should be kept below 4%. Now, that means even if you were getting a 4% wage increase, with inflation at 7.8%, that means you've gone backwards 3.8% in a year. In a year. After a decade, a decade or more of stagnant wages, low wage growth, you've got the Reserve Bank governor telling people to take a cut. At the same time, suggesting that they might increase rates even more. Now, that's a double whammy. That's a double whammy for a lot of people. If you're an early early mortgage holder, so you've saved up, you've managed to get a deposit together, and you've got a mortgage, well, you've already been copying increases in your mortgage repayments. We're seeing that flow through to people in rentals as well. I don't need to tell you, dear listener, the pressure that's on in the rental market. You've got some states where there's active bidding wars for very limited numbers of rentals and prices going through the roof. Story after story of unethical behavior, profiteering in some cases. I read one story where it wasn't even the landlord, it was the real estate agents who were pushing up 
the rent. And when the landlord found out about it, they sacked the real estate agent. But there is absolutely flow-through impacts of raising interest rates. And the reality is that it is working people who are copying and bearing the brunt of that. We know from studies that were done last year that 60% of the inflation burden in this country comes from excess profit-taking. Now, that suggests that the Menzian approach to dealing with inflation, the British Labor approach of the 40s to deal with inflation is the way to go. That is to raise taxes. You can deal with inflation by raising taxes. You can deal with inflation by removing costs from the basket of goods. People might remember during the COVID pandemic, there was actually a couple of months where we had deflation because childcare and early childhood education was being fully funded, which meant for a lot of families that that cost was taken out of the basket of goods. They no longer had to pay that from their pocket. It was being paid from their taxes, from all of our taxes, and it meant that inflation actually dropped. The concern is that households are running out of savings. People have been dipping into savings to pay for these increased costs, whether it's increased mortgage, increased rent, increased food, fruit, vegetables, general groceries, all of it has gone up. Coles and Woolworths are looking at 9% increases from 2022. Now, this is a recipe for a recession. There's no question. And this is, you know, these are, these are people, I don't normally quote uh, people like Stephen Smith from the Business Outlook Report or uh, KPMG's chief economist, Brendan Ryan, who says that uh, the economy is likely to slow down pretty rapidly as a consequence of rate rises that we've already had to date. Uh, you've got a brick coming at you pretty fast. Uh, Deloitte has said the economy could fall into a recession if the central bank continues to hike rates. Uh, Stephen Smith from the Business Outlook report says it could uh, increases could unnecessarily tip Australia into a recession. Uh, most households will finish the current financial year at levels last seen before the onset of the pandemic. Three years ago, most households will end up back where they were three years ago or worse, or worse. That's terrible. That is, it is an outrageous idea. And Alan Collar had a really interesting piece in the New Daily where he talked about this idea of bleeding the patient to make them better. It's a really... He does it really cleverly. I'm not going to try and repeat it verbatim, but you should check out um, Alan Collar's piece. Of course, he's also uh, does the financial reports for the ABC News, but he makes the case around price controls as a mechanism. You know, that's one of the other ways. You don't have it doesn't have to be all on the consumer and the household, uh, and it's a really brilliant 
comparison. There's only so much, so long you can bleed an already sick patient before they just die, right? And that's what interest rate rises are doing. The economy is not strong. There are issues around supply. There are issues around profiteering. There are there are significant global headwinds with the war in Ukraine, with China only just starting to reopen after its COVID zero policy. There are significant supply constraints that have been driving up costs. Of course, we've had natural disasters as well here in Australia. That's the true price of climate change in the short term, folks, is you do pay at the grocery store. You do pay at the supermarket, you do pay at the cash register. The government has done something about energy prices and that's starting to flow through. And in fact, the inflation figures today started to reflect some of that. And Jim Chalmers was talking about that in his comments in regards to today's figures. But there's more that can be done here. Uh, Partly, it's about stopping profiteering and taxing companies is always a good way to encourage them to use their money wisely rather than hand it out in excess profits. But of course, if we don't do some of this, what we're going to see is rising unemployment. Now, (laughs) Stephen Kukoulis, who I think is great and he does some really great stuff on Twitter, he's really worth having a look at. He's a former prime ministerial advisor on the economy and he basically said that the RBA should just stay on holiday uh, and they'd be gaga yeah, to raise rates. They'd be gaga to raise rates. Michael Pascoe has written in the New Daily that hopefully the RBA just stays on holiday because, quite frankly, their interventions are not helping. Their interventions are making things worse. This Australian jobs data was weaker in December than expected. Employment fell by 15,000. Unemployment didn't change because more people just stopped looking for work. But underemployment also rose to 6.1%. That's that other component of what happens when you raise interest rates, right? This neoliberal paradigm that working people will have to pay. We either have to pay directly in cash from our pocket, higher prices on the things that we need to survive, or we pay with our jobs and our wages and our income. And and for 15,000 people in December, that's what happened. That's what happened. That's the impact just in December. The Commonwealth Bank, their economics team, is saying that GDP growth will only be 1.1% and that unemployment will go up from 3.5% to 4.25%. Now, this is fundamentally not a problem that working people have created. This is not the kind of inflation cycle that we saw in the 70s. This isn't that workers went on strike for 20% pay increases or to be less productive. Australian workers are and have been incredibly productive over the last three, five years. Labor productivity is up. In this country, it is capital productivity that has been down. And when some of it we understand, some of it we get, right? The supply chain stuff I talked about before, the, the issues in China, just accessing shipping containers during a pandemic. 
there's been some things that even the capitalists can't control, but that 60% that has gone to profits, Phil Lowe from the RBA is not suggesting that companies should be reducing profit. He's not suggesting that executives take bonus cuts. Alan Joyce got his bonus this year, despite everything else, right? These are people on very large wages, very comfortable livings, suggesting that people, everyday people, students, working people, the unemployed, the retired Australians in this country should have to, should have to cover the costs. And quite frankly, I think there's a real question about whether or not in a democratic society, the Reserve Bank Governor and his board, his board of people who are generally from business, who have been CEOs in business, who are part of that club, if you like, should be deciding whether or not to throw thousands of working people into unemployment or forcing them into huge levels of housing stress, forcing them to choose between whether or not they can even afford fresh food. And look, Michelle O'Neill, who's the president of the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, made the point very, very clear, very, very clear that working people cannot be forced to shoulder the burden of slowing inflation. It is not up to working people to slow inflation. Working people have lifted productivity. Working people have dug into savings to fund their mortgages, to fund their rent. It's time that big business do its part. It's time that Phil Lowe maybe pays a bit more tax. Maybe it's time that there be a little less price gouging, a little less profit taking, and a little more cost relief. You know, it always amazes me that conservatives in this country and around the world talk about tax relief, right? Like somehow or another, tax is this significant burden. Quite aside from the fact that we need taxes in order to fund schools and hospitals and Medicare. And of course, the government has announced there'll be a process of reviewing and reforming Medicare that will involve all of the stakeholders so that we get on top of this creep that's happened in Medicare. I'm not going to get too much into that today, but you can check out Mark Butler's statements on that, the ANMF, Australian Nursing and Midwives Federation, has made statements about that as well, bringing down the cost of a trip to the doctor, bringing down the cost of primary health care so that everyone can have access. That's what our taxes are for. Uh, the conservatives talk about it as though it's a burden, yet they never talk about the profit burden. They never talk about the cost burden that every day, every person in this country and in most countries around the world, has to pay to keep executives and wealthy shareholders 
and the billionaire class in the lifestyles to which they've become accustomed. That's part of what's happening. 60%. The Australian Institute was reported in the SBS. It was reported in The Guardian. 60% of our inflation burden is coming from excess profit. So it'd be nice to see a reserve bank say, enough's enough. It's time for some of these companies to shock horror, perhaps have a year where they don't have a profit, have a year where they're not piling cash into their coffers, not piling cash into executive bonuses, but giving their customers, giving the citizens of this country a bit of cost relief. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, and maybe I'm showing my age when I say this, I remember a time when companies would occasionally have a loss. There would be a year where they would not be profitable. Now, I'm not suggesting that companies can run ad infinitum at a loss. Of course, they can't. That's not how business works. But somehow or another, in this last 40 years, of neoliberal hellscape, we've become conditioned to believe that unless a company is recording record profits every year, it's not successful. And the rest of the economy can just go to hell in a handbasket. That is not acceptable. My view. My view is that we have to put some pressure back on corporate Australia, not just in Australia, but corporations around the world. We know so many of these corporations operate globally to wear some of the cost. Because let me tell you, they're not wearing it now. They are not wearing it now. They are passing it on. And in fact, you're seeing this, whether you're in tech or hospitality, whatever it might be, prices are going up but profits are going up as well. And in some cases, profits are going up even faster, even faster than prices. Because under the guise of this inflation crisis, you have employers sacking extra people than they need to. You have employers bringing in changes to the workplace. Right? You have employers just lifting prices because they can get away with it. This is why it's so important to be a member of your union. You know, when the economic times are hard, it's working people standing together that actually ensures policy that's in the interest of working people, whether it's at the workplace or government, as opposed to just allowing people like Philip Lowe, who just have no idea how real ordinary people have to live their lives. People like Philip Lowe and Alan Joyce and CEOs of major corporations making decisions. Now, I know there are small businesses out there before you inundate me with, but small businesses have had to put up prices because they've got no choice. I get that. I really do. And I have many conversations with small business owners who, ha- who, who are losing money, right? Who have either lost money or they've taken a haircut. They're doing everything they can to keep people on, to keep prices low, because they're in competition with these big businesses, right? They know, they know that 
if their local community can't afford to shop there, that's that's a one-way ticket to bankruptcy. They get that. Right? And, of course, we want to support local small business as much as possible. So if you can, please, please do. And I appreciate, again, though, there is a cost issue here too, right? You've got monopolies. You've got the big supermarkets are able to use scale. And, again, these are issues that I know I know the Labor government is looking at. We've seen statements come out in the public around the power of monopolies, the power of concentration in particularly things like supermarkets where you have this ability to control both supply and price and that impacts on everyday people but also local small businesses as well because they can't get it at the same price. So their price at the cash register is higher. It's There's a lot to be done here. Alan Collar's suggestion, we have to think about how we manage pricing policy. We absolutely do. We also have to think about the tax settings on corporations and the very wealthy. And we have to, we have to prevent all of the power being vested in Philip Lowe and a small cadre of big business neoliberal acolytes. Otherwise, despite the very best efforts and despite the very best declarations by Michelle O'Neill, other union leaders, community leaders, that working people won't be the ones or can't be the ones to fight inflation, it will absolutely fall to working people and we will pay the price. Now, good news. Let's have some good news because the Mersey River in Liverpool the river that splits the city in two is alive and well. There are 37 different species of fish, more than two and a half times as many as there were 20 years ago. This is just fantastically good news. The Mersey River has been sort of a well-known cultural icon rather than an environmental icon because of how polluted the river was over such a long period of time from the Industrial Revolution. You know, I talked earlier about Britain uh, and its colonisation of Australia. Well, its treatment of its own environment during that period was also horrendous. And in fact, it was one of the most uh, polluted rivers in the world. The Mersey Rivers Trust, which is a public-private uh, charity partnership, has been uh, creating special areas uh, for breeding for uh, different species of fish. There's now five different species of shark. Uh, Van will hate this, but eels, uh, sea scorpions, uh, all sorts of just marine life now coming back. Uh, it's a really fantastic outcome. There's been 30 years of work by this trust uh, on this, uh, and it's now cleaner than at any time since the Industrial Revolution and is now considered to be one of the cleanest rivers in the United Kingdom and one of Europe's most successful river restoration projects. That's really good news. It goes to show that when we put our minds to it, when we put our effort to it, 
when we put our resources and work together, we can actually reverse damage that has been created in the past. And I think there's a, a beautiful symbolism to that. You know, in the 19th century, the Mersey River was all but destroyed. Uh, and now it is absolutely part of the recovery because of the efforts that people have put in. And I think we can take lessons from that uh, beyond, beyond just the natural environment into how we consider dealing with our history and ensuring our future. Now, of course, ensuring our future, the week on Wednesday happens because of listeners like you who become supporters. You know, we always delighted to meet people who listen to the show. I've had a few people in the last couple of days uh, who I've bumped into who've told me they listen to the show. Uh, shout out to Cam, who's a Cadre supporter, uh, who I saw at Victorian Trades Hall the other day. Uh, it was really great to meet you, Cam. Uh, people contact us online. And our Cadre supporters are people who chip in $20 a month to help us grow the audience for the week on Wednesday to get these messages to even more people. Now, not everyone can afford to do that. And you can, of course, share this episode with anyone you like, talk to them about the issues in it. You know, you can join your union online. You can use this uh, podcast at any point to talk to people about why they should join their union and how that builds a better society and a better workplace for them. And of course, we have people who also our Extend the Reach supporters, $10 a month, they're chipping in to help grow that audience and our Buck a Week supporters as well who chip in a buck a week. That's right there in the name. And our one-off supporters. We have people who just give us, we had someone give us $100 this week, which is fantastic. It really helps. All of the money, all of the money that we raise through our Buy Me A Coffee page, it's buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Whether you're a cadre, extend the reach, buck a week, just giving a once-off uh, contribution all of that money goes back into growing the audience. We, that That's not money that Van and I use for any other purpose. It's all going to trying to get these messages to more people and to grow the audience, to grow the community of the week on Wednesday. Now, if you can't afford to give a contribution, and I know we've talked about the cost of living today, so I appreciate for some people making a financial contribution is not possible. This will always be free to download and listen, and you can help by sharing sharing the links wherever you've listened to this podcast. Share that link on your social media pages. Email it to people who you think might be interested. But I do want to give a shout out. We always give a shout out to our cadre and our Extend the Reach supporters because they have, they have dipped into their pockets, they have made a contribution, and we should acknowledge that contribution uh, and congratulate them on helping grow this podcast. Uh, congratulations to everyone who's helped grow this podcast because we have well and truly surpassed 700,000 downloads and are well on our way towards that 1 million mark. So our cadre are Steph, Karina Barley, at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Burris, Kristen Sekluna, Gabe Kramer, Steve Stefan Aiken, you can see why Van normally does this, right? Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, at Evergreen Vies, 
Giota, Adjed Carney, Christine Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Foster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Matt Bush, No Relation, Richard Sands, I am not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Carrie Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Marissa Simon, at Catagal, Lauren Ashen Banjo, Matthew Hadley, at Narunga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, slash at Red, White, Blue, Lou. And our Extend the Reach supporters are Helen, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron, Tra Dragon, Daniel, at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, at Ange Fennell, Anna Uran, at Ross Kenner 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Dinning, Jody A, not on Twitter, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, at K Not, Love Your Work, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannum, Marie, M- Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckart, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, at Gail Vest, Greg Martin, Trina, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Elaine and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizard Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Bomgar, at Not Sandy B, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Marky Mark, at Vic M. Bit, Adrian Valente, Maritza, at Caridale 68, Frank Mahus, Erica Pazuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, and Pauline Pate. Thank you to everyone who supports the week on Wednesday in whatever way you can, whether it's chipping in a buck a week, whether it's as a cadre supporter, whether it's coming along to seeing us in Adelaide. Don't forget, if you're in Adelaide or planning to be there or just think, you know, I'd really like to see the week on Wednesday live, I'm going to go along to the Adelaide Fringe Festival between the 22nd of February and the 15th of March. You will see us at the Immigration Museum in the Yurt. We hope to have some special guests. We're reaching out to some people who we think might be interesting. I'm not going to give it away. Keep it as a surprise. Uh, and until then, you, of course, can catch Van's articles in The Guardian, some excellent articles in the last week or so. And the weekend wrap will come out on Sunday as well. Hopefully, Van will be able to resolve some of the issues that have prevented her from participating uh, in today's episode. There was some technical issues as well as just dealing with some of the administration. We really appreciate everybody's patience and understanding. We know that you know how much we care about you, our audience, uh, and we appreciate how much you care about us too. So until Sunday, remember, be kind to yourself and to each other.